Welcome to the Double Unfiltered Podcast. We are your hosts, our Mary, Dr. Nafi, and Anafai Butner. We are here to engage, educate, and hopefully empower you. Today's episode is a first for the Deborah Unfiltered podcast. We have never had an author come on our podcast to talk about the release of his new book. So we're super excited to have Dr. Ishmael with us, who has written Life as a Hyphen, which is due to be released on July 4th. Now, Dr. Ismail is a Gambian-American, and he's a newcomer as far as being an author because this is his first published work. Dr. Ismail, thank you so much for coming on here and for choosing Double Unfiltered to be the podcast that you want to talk about your book. I'm sure there are so many other people that want you on their platform, so we're glad to be the first. And I'm going to give you the floor to please just introduce yourself, let our listeners know who you are, and then we'll dive into the book and you as a person. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you, Anna. Thank you, Aaron Mary. Definitely grateful for, for you guys sharing your platform with me. Um, I'm a fan of the work. I've listened to it. So it's really an honor. Um, as you mentioned, my name is Ismail. I am was born in the Gambia, uh, but spent most of my life in the USA um, as well, too. Professionally, I am a pharmacist, uh, but I wear many hats as well, too. Um, so, yeah, just looking forward to the discussion, uh, getting to learn from you guys, but hopefully getting to share my story as well. Awesome. So I know our audience is wondering, wait, where's Dr. Nafi? So Dr. Nafi wasn't able to join us on this recording because Dr. Nafi is out living her best life on vacation with right. her husband. Right. <laughs> right exactly <laughs> so she's missing a good one but yes. we are going to hold it down oh mary you and i got this one we got so, this i even got the mandinka today so we got oh, it oh, oh now don't start making promises <laughs> <laughs> so dr ishma i think my first question for you is if you can just give us a quick background of like your family set up? Like, do you come from a big family? Do you come from a small family? And when did you move to the US? And also, because I feel like a lot of Gambians know about you, which we'll get into your other work outside of the book as well. But I feel like they don't know the trajectory of your um, educational mm -hmm. path. So if you mm -hmm. can just give us a little bit about that. No, yeah, thank you. Um, so yes, yeah, so I come from a family of five um, and I'm a middle child. Uh, which mm -hmm. has a lot to do with the way I see the world, my personality. I, I don't know how my mom did it, but she went boy, girl, boy, girl, boy. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I, I'm, in, I'm a middle child. Um, so we left Gambia. I don't remember Gambia as a child because we left when I was an infant. So our family moved to Belgium uh, for a year and a half, two years, and then moved to New York. Um, so I actually did not know Gambia, did not know about being Gambian until 1992, when I was seven, when my dad moved us back to Gambia. And I stayed in Gambia from seven to 17 and left and didn't come back until as an adult. So seven to 17, I think anybody's life, that's really formidable. You get to know so much about who you are, which was intentional from my dad's side. So I, when I came back uh, at the age of seven, I went through Mrs. Nell. So he split us apart. Some of us went through the Marina route. Um, the old three older ones, he took us through Mrs. Nell's until grade nine. 
And then it was mandatory that your high school was going to be done in a public school. So the three older siblings, Malik, Fatima, and myself, had to go to Gambia High, which was a blessing in disguise. For me, it, I was reluctant in the beginning, but I know why my dad do it, did it at that time. But also as a science student, uh, Gambia High, maybe now it's different, but if you were a science mm -hmm. student at that time, you wanted to be at Gambia High because it was just where all the you know, people, it was very competitive. Um, so yeah, I'm proud to say I was, I'm a Gambia High alumni. I was head boy at Gambia High. I think that's when I really got to see Gambia in a different lens because Mrs. Ndows can be a bubble. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it, that's a little bit about who I am uh, as well too. But yeah, family of five. Uh, my dad is a retired ambassador. Uh, he's been an ambassador up until 2017. And my mom is a career entrepreneur uh, as well, too. Nice. I love that. I love that. Here is another Gambia alum. So I love the story. Yes. And um, I can actually relate, you know, um, same time living in the Gambia, leave, you know, leaving the Gambia and living in the U.S. So I can definitely relate to that story, which I didn't even know. So I'm so uh, glad you actually shared that because I didn't know that. Another thing yeah. that I just wanted to ask, which I think Anna asked a question, but w like what got you into studying science and then pharmacy? Like how did that come about? It was accidental, uh, to be honest. Um, I, I always knew academics was never difficult for me, which is why I was always even distracted in high school between sports and extracurricular activities. But I left Gambia because civil engineering sounded good. So mm -hmm. I got to college as a civil engineer and two weeks later changed my major to chemistry um, as a foundation degree because I started getting curious about the sciences. Uh, and so chemistry was like a foundation degree so that I could get to a point where I could decide, do I want to go to medical school? Do I want to go to pharmacy school? Or do I want to go to dental school? I don't come from a family of healthcare professionals, so I never grew up with a role model doctor or my mm -hmm. dad being a doctor or my mom being a nurse. So I think it's accidental where just my curiosities always led me to kind of lean in a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, and I honestly fell in love with pharmacy because of that reason, because we grew up in a retail home. My mom inherited my grandmother's store at Albert Market. She used to sell fabric. Uh, my mom took it over. So when we moved back from New York, my mom evolved the business to New York fashion uh, and started buying merchandise from New York. So I grew up in a retail entrepreneurial environment. Mm -hmm. And if you and if you look at pharmacy is the one medical profession, that's the intersection between entrepreneurship, retail and healthcare. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's why it was a more natural fit. And I got really, really good at just understanding how healthcare is provided in the, in the community. Uh, but academically, even my siblings will tell you they hated me the most because I probably put in the least <laughs> amount of effort in, into school. In, into school. Right. Uh, but yeah, so it, uh, it, most medical, you know, people in the medical profession will tell you this inspirational story about how, but I think it was just completely accidental and just following my curiosities. So before we get into the book, because I know, obviously, I'm so excited to hear more. I just have one last question for you. And so I know that, you know, a lot of people do get confused with the doctor of pharmacy versus a medical doctor versus a PhD. 
And so for me, like, you know, <laughs> the way I kind of summarize it is that Dr. Burut Pingu, right? So like, <laughs> what would you, what would you um, describe? Like, can you tell us and the people that are listening, because, you know, they may just hear Dr. You know, Dr. Ismail Baji and they just think automatically that's a medical doctor. Because I know, you know, in Gambia, they don't like I have to literally explain. I used to explain to my dad being a PhD holder. No, he's Dr. Budupingo. So what would you say would be the difference so that they understand, like, look, I'm not a medical doctor, but let me let me explain exactly what I do. What does doctor of pharmacy really mean? Yeah, that's an excellent question because I'm honestly tired. Because so the doctor title means more means more to my dad. He refuses to even call me Ismaila. He still calls me Dr. Baji, which is a whole other issue, right? Uh, but a lot of people actually don't know that the physicians, mm-hmm. which we consider medical doctors, did not. They don't own the doctor title. The academics actually owned it first until the medical profession wanted to start using it for that. That's actually the history of the title, right? Mm. Um, and, and even Dr. Budutengu, I've probably given more injections than the average Gambian doctor because in the USA, where do you go for all your immunizations? Pharmacists give more immunizations than any healthcare profession in the USA. So even that has evolved. Mm-hmm. But the best, way, the best way to describe it is a physician is trained about the human body so that they could find out what is wrong. So mm-hmm. all, they, all their training is doing that. So they get one year or maybe two of finding out, once you find out something is wrong, what are your options in terms of medications, right? So that's what they do. Mm-hmm. A doctor of pharmacy, we spend our entire medical profession learning about medications from how you make medication to what happens till you stop taking medications, meaning you die, right? So it's an evolution of a medical profession where it's more, we actually are in charge of the medical medication aspect of patients. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then the physicians are in charge of the diagnostics or the different specialties. So it's really, Africa is a little bit behind in terms of the idea of why the doctor of pharmacy was created. Mm -hmm. Uh, But now you have a doctor of pharmacy, you have a doctor of physical therapy, you have a doctor of pharmacist, a a physician, a medical doctor, all designed to provide care for the patient, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Obviously, Gambia, that's Africa in general, there's not a lot of doctors of pharmacy. I think Gambia only has maybe two that are registered, maybe three in the Mm -hmm. Gambia. Uh, So yeah, that's the distinction, but it's just evolution of medicine. Um, And I think my fellow physicians have uh, taken a lot of real estate in healthcare for a very long time. So even they mm-hmm. are struggling uh, to make room uh, for a different breed of, uh, you know, doctors in the medical field. Right. Okay. Yeah. All right. Okay. Well, Anna, so, over to you. Let's get okay. to the book. Let me, let me piggyback on, on, on one of the questions that I'll Mary asked before we jump in. So let's also clarify about prescription medication. So as a doctor of pharmacy, can you prescribe medication to your patients? No, unless you have a collaborative practice agreement, which is you are working in mm. consortium with a physician mm-hmm. because in an, in an ideal world, we know more about what the medication is going to do and how mm-hmm. to adjust the dose, how to do a lot of things, right? America is ahead because now in the USA, things like birth control, a pharmacist can prescribe. 
right? In the case of emergency, if you know that somebody's been taking, let's say, an asthma inhaler and the doctor's not available, a pharmacist can prescribe. But in a general sense, no. We safeguard the accurate prescription from the doctor so we become the interface between the doctor's agreement or assessment in the form of a diagnosis to dispensing of a patient, but no. But I'm, I'm describing the U.S. system. Gambia, you don't even need a doctor to diagnose. You could walk into a pharmacy and you could get 500 tablets of amoxicillin if you wanted to and just walk outside, right? Uh, so that's the utopian way, but, but no. Uh, yeah, we, we're not supposed to. Uh, we stay in our domain for the most part, scope of practice. Right. Uh, but any good, yeah, any good doctor knows you need a good pharmacist to get better patient outcomes. Perfect. Thank you for that clarification. So um, with your new book, Life as a Hyphen, um, you chose to get published by Phi Network. And in all transparency, I have to share that I'm one of the owners of Phi Network. So before I even start by asking, why did you want to write a book? What motivated you to want to write a book? Why did you choose Phi Network to publish your book with? I trusted the content mm -hmm. with Fine Network because I was a consumer of their products for one. My daughter, um, I share my daughter, which I talk about a lot. Um, she's had a fine outlook on mm -hmm. her identity as a black child. And it's meant so much to me. And I know some of the topics that I write about in the book, one day very personal where I could not have trusted a publishing company that did not understand the two worlds from which I come from mm -hmm. as, as, as fine. That's honestly the reason why, because some of these stories and uh, writings, I've had them for three, four years, but I've never really just felt like the right person at the right time could really bring this project to life. So that's honestly the real reason why. Um, so I went on the website, I'm like, okay, it took me a while to submit that manuscript because you write, um, but you still don't know how it's going to land. But it's just a matter of trust. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that was most important. Uh, and just the quality of work and what the vision of Fine Network is, I think it aligned very well with a project like this. So I was honestly honored that they'll even take a shot at <laughs> publishing it. But that's the reason why. Awesome. Yeah. Great. Um, I'm happy to hear that. You guys should see me. I'm smiling from ear to ear. <laughs> but um, So let's get into the content about life as a hyphen. Writing and the process of writing. Can you just break down for us your process? Because it could be such a vulnerable space. Um, I feel like when you're writing, you're in the privacy, probably in your own room or your office. There's nobody there. So you're able to really pour your heart out into your work and be as honest as you want to be. But then there's that part where, oh, now everybody else is going to see and read and know about these stories. So what was your process? And did you have filters for yourself where you were like, okay, I can't go that far? Or were you just like, I'm going to give it my all and I want to share in each topic, in each essay, everything with all honesty and authenticity? Yeah, I, I think it, it goes back to me being a middle child. Because uh, I think if middle child family of three is different from middle child family of five, right? So you're literally oftentimes designed to self-soothe as a human being, you're designed to compartmentalize and you're always designed to know, okay, there's noise at the top, there's noise at the bottom. I'm just gonna sit with what I think, even though I observe so much around me that I'm trying to make sense of it. 
Um, so I think there's, it's, it's rooted in that. And I think a lot of our manifestations as adults, you could trace it to childhood situations, right? Mm-hmm. But I got to a point as an adult too, that I started a journey of self-discovery and a, oh, almost a little bit of internal rebellion. And I realized that writing became therapy. It became the only outlet I had where I felt like I was being heard, even though I was writing to myself or about something. Mm-hmm. And then the more, the more I did it, obviously creativity is also something that I think it, it becomes, it compounds where I realized like, oh, I actually enjoy not only articulating my thoughts in a way that you could get really creative, but every time I had a very strong sentiment and emotion about something that I couldn't talk to my mom, I couldn't talk to my dad, I couldn't talk to any significant other I had in my life at the time, I couldn't talk to my siblings. When I wrote about it, I felt not only did I feel better, but it allowed me to park it, take that emotion and set it to the side and just let it sit and come back to it to see, okay, do I still feel this way? So that's where the creative process started. And I realized like, yo, there's a lot that I want to get off my chest, right? (laughs) Uh, And and then it became that, that creative process. And I got to a point where every now and then I'll share some of the writings. And then you realize that ideas or observations that you're sitting with, it, it resonates with other people. And obviously there's a nuance to it because you can't write crappy stuff. And I'm very sensitive about that in terms of, I don't want to be an author just to be an author. If I'm going to put something out in the world, I would want right. it to be something of right. quality that has value. Um, so I think it's, it's been, I started for selfish reasons uh, to, as, as a form of therapy for myself. But then I realized that a lot of the struggles, a lot of the, the, the two culture kids, what they go through. And just my experience was unique enough where I felt like a responsibility as well too, where as a man, I'm okay talking about some of the things because my 20s were turbulent. I had to figure out who I was, what aspects of Gambia I did not want to be part of me, what aspects of America I did not want to be part of me. And and then I settled in. So that's really how the process has been. Mm. I love it. I love it. I know. I love that. So tell us about the book. Like what, what do, what should we expect? Yeah. So life as a hyphen, it's literally, I see it as, because a lot of people, if you hear it and it was like, what exactly is he talking about? I felt like my whole life, I've never been strongly affiliated with one side of something, Mm -hmm. right? I've always found myself in the middle. I didn't know Gambia. The first country I knew and loved was the USA. And then, so I had to get immersed in Gambia and went through the trauma of somebody who's Gambian by name, but can't speak Wolof. And then you'll get Mrs. Ndaos the first couple of days and you're fighting every single day and things of that nature. Mm -hmm. You're not Gambian Mm -hmm. enough. I went through that transition. And then at 17 years old, they dropped me on on an HBCU campus in Nashville, Mm -hmm. Tennessee. And and I had to get re-immersed and become the African booty scratcher and become, you know, (laughs) Kunta Kinte, right? So my my whole life has been this pendulum that's been swinging uh, but as uncomfortable as it was in the beginning, I started realizing that this is actually giving me range in a way that I could literally be in Memphis, Tennessee, having mm-hmm. conversations with people and understand the culture because I immerse myself right. in that culture. And the next day be at Bakota sitting under a tree, having a tire with people and still feel normal when that's mm-hmm. not the average experience for a lot of people, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So that's, what, that's one aspect, but also the, the most transformative 
moment in my life was having a daughter. Uh, the, everything that happened before then, uh, being married before, obviously didn't have a child, had, being married to somebody who was not Gambian, navigating the, the complexities of the cultural nuances and political nuances around that. Mm -hmm. um, so a lot, of, a lot of my life experiences just started becoming something I wanted to document. Uh, okay. but, but as an adult now, being home and getting to know my parents for the first time and them getting to know me, mm -hmm. I felt like, okay, there's still a lot of things. I can't have a conversation with you, mm -hmm. but I'm going mm -hmm. to write it as a gift to you and hopefully it'll, we could ha then have a conversation about it. So that's really what the book is about. Uh, just is, things that I've observed, yeah. That is beautiful. I mean, it, I could, I'm, I'm excited actually to look forward to reading it because it sounded like you're describing me and my life. So, it, you know, I, I'm so glad we got to interview because we have more in common that I, that I could, I, that I actually even knew. So that's, that's awesome. You know, I think it's, um, and, and a lot of us, I mean, I'm sure Anna, you as well included, you know, being born outside the country, coming back to the Gambia, well, coming to the Gambia for the first time, hopping on a plane, leaving and, le you know, living in the United States. I also lived in the U.S. from the age of 17. And then, you know, like you said, I could sit in North Carolina, went to an HBCU, so I could also relate um, how you can really, you know, find yourself in so many different cultures and sit in the same thing. Like, you know, we talked about before coming on, like going into the villages and just chilling there, like living your best life. So I could totally relate, you know, wherever you go. So but I think that's that's what we have a competitive advantage or an advantage really when you think about it because they threw us so many different directions, our parents, but it made us stronger. And I feel like that's why we can relate and, and, and live into so many different cultures and accept and have that compassion and empathy and that we can live anywhere else. Um, so I, I do Absolutely. love that. I love that. I love that about it. So, so if I can just jump in here, Ismail, you talked about... Um, having been married before, and I also, I mean, my second marriage, I actually had a child from my first marriage. And you're saying that in your now current marriage, you have a daughter. So you have a wife and a daughter, that's your family set up. And uh, not to give too much away, but can you just give us a couple of maybe one or two lessons that you learned from the marrying, you know, and what you think about Kumba Banjo, Samba Banjo. Because, mm. you know, I feel like a lot mm. of us Gambians, when we want to marry outside of Gambia or a mm. Gambian, someone who's not Gambian, we get a lot of pushback from our parents, right? Like, you know, like all those things, right? Like literally they give us hell when we bring a foreigner. Oh, you know, yeah. so it's like now that you're in this current marriage and your wife is from Gambia like is it easier is it is it because of the language and the culture like there's so much that you don't need to explain there's nothing lost in translation but what's making this work better if if, if there is something that's making it work be better and easier than the first time around with the non-Gambian can you get into that a little bit <laughs> Yes, yes, sure. And, and this is something, it took me a while to let go of a lot of resentment that I had, not a, about how our culture made me almost have to choose between mm. my first wife and, and, and the culture or the identity of Gambian. And it's subtle sometimes, it's very, microaggression happens 
in right. like Gambian societies where like we'll go to a Gambian function, for example, you know, like you said about the Ayo, Yone Amagulo Jaba. It's like, what yep. do you mean Amagulo Jaba? Oh, yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. right? So, and, and as a 25-year-old, I think you're more rebellious and defiant because I was like, you know what? Screw the world. I'm going to show you why it's going to work. But you exert so much energy trying to push against this mammoth of a force where you lose sight of the fact that you're still two young people in your 20s trying to figure yeah. it out. So at some point, it breaks you. And, and I think that the tragedy about it is on the flip side, I mean, my ex-wife was Southside Chicago. We went to an HBCU together. You receive so much love and embrace from her side of the family because at the same yeah. time, they see it's like, hey, an African brother, you know, chose our daughter, right? It means it carries weight because they see it as no matter how distance these people's experience is, love brought them together. Mm-hmm. So I think it's one, it one changed my perspective on, on love from a marriage standpoint, I understood it to be a political agreement between families. And I think this is why even my current wife, when I met her, she left Gambia at the age of 11, moved to North Carolina. She didn't have traditional Gambian values, which is so it's compatibility. And we see the world differently. And going back to what you said, Anna, it's just certain nuances that I don't have to explain like mm-hmm. to Adama now where she gets it. So she knows I'm Gambian enough to be familiar, but I'm not too Gambian where our lives are going to be. We're seeing the world two different ways. Mm-hmm. Right? So it becomes easier because you're also not fighting this political family dynamic mm-hmm. structure mm-hmm. because our parents knew each other. That's why we got married so fast. We never dated because the moment our two moms found out we were just talking they were like, ah, we can you know good key. I'm not quite key. Get me let you get. Right. Right. Uh, so that, that's the biggest that's the biggest difference. But now having a daughter, I see the balance between those two really visceral extremes. Uh, and it works because she gets me, I get her. Um, so so it's just vague, but it's definitely changed my perspective on on a lot um, as well. So is it is it like a bonus that you get a, a, a Gambian who practically grew up in the U.S., but she's also still tied to her Gambian roots? So she can give you Victoria's Secret and she can give you Becho. She can give you Churai <laughs> yeah. and she can yeah. give you like, you know, you like go. candles. Like, So do you feel like that makes the, the marriage like a lot more exciting? Absolutely. And, and it's, I don't have to hide any side of me. I don't need to act all, right. all religious. Right. You know, I, I don't, it, it became right. easy because I'm like, oh, I could be exactly who I am and you could right. be exactly who you are because I don't expect every day. It's like, hey, what we doing? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Right? Got that right? Time. <laughs> right? So I, I get it. So it, it's really, it's raised. It, it, there's such such beauty in that because we could be as hood as we want, go to a club, you know, listen right. to crunk, Southern music. Right. But right. then, right. so it's like, right. it's just that, that range, right? And a lot of the social agreements that Gambians have, we laugh at it together. And there's joy in that because it's like, we're not right. doing that, right? Right, um, exactly. So, there's there's definitely some joy in that for sure i love it i love it for you yeah i i do too i love it and i do you know when you said that i you know obviously i'm a product of you know a non you know non-gambian my mother 
and obviously Anna as well. So I could, like, I still, you know, obviously they were not happy until my dad married somebody else. Like, that's it. You know, you have to, like, now you marry because Tubap, say a Tubap or say somebody else that's not Gambian is not say, you know? So I can't, I, I hate that. And I hear it a lot, a lot. I mean, till this day, I know that it still happens. And I, it's very quiet and unfortunate um, that they don't allow people to be happy because regardless of what it is, if you think about it, I know that happens for you. But with my mom, she's more Gambian than any other Gambian that is. And she's a white tubab. We lack all of weed. Yep. Yep. You know yep. what I'm saying? So it just depends how much that person is vested and loves you. That's going to come all the way out. So sometimes I hate when they put that and feel like, oh, well, she's not Gambian enough. Well, I mean, I'm not Gambian. Like, if you think about it, right, you will be like, maybe, you know, yes, I have my Gambian roots and all that. But like you said, you know, I'll be just like your wife because we grew outside, you know, grew outside, grew up outside. And, you know, that's why for me, I'll like, I'm always grateful for my husband because I'm like, if it wasn't him, I don't know who I would marry, honestly, because I cannot deal with the typical you know, like you said, Kilifalati, Kurus de Mali, Johmani Jai Marer. I'm like, you're going to be eaten by yourself. Like, you know, so yeah, <laughs> that just doesn't happen in my household. <laughs> like, we're not doing that, you know, but it's true. It's true. It's so important. This, you know, the mind shift that we have now as, as I don't know what you want to call it. I don't know, westernized Gambians or whatever. It's so important to have people, a group of people that you can relate to because it, it can be different, right? But you still do whatever is necessary to keep your marriage all, you know, great or whatever, you know, as required of you. Yeah, love that. Uh, and, that and that's what I remember about your mom because, you know, mom, our mother is uh, younger I know. and I were, were in the same class. And I yeah. remember your mom through our childhood because, like, she spoke well of better than I could even ever speak well of I know. at that time. Right? That's but right. It's, it's, such, it's such a nuance as well, too. But yeah, you, it's 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 one of those tales in our society, and I think that's it's robbed a lot of people of like true compatibility and happiness. Exactly, for sure. For sure. I'm glad you brought that up. Thank you. So let me let me ask because I know that you talk about your daughter all the time. You share like pictures and videos and the most heartfelt, sweet, and of course, you also did a, a girl dad article for fire network. So I want to touch on being a girl dad and what that has done to you. Cause you know, girl dads, like they play princess, they do hair, they give mm -hmm. manicures, they're, they're doing tea parties. So, but at the same time, it's like you find the toughest guy and they become softies when they have daughters. What mm -hmm. has it like, what's the biggest change you notice about yourself um, after the birth of your daughter? She's the first woman in my life who held the ability to break my heart. And I know that's mm -hmm. weird when you, say, when you say it sometimes, because I've had relationships with women that I really cared about. But part of me always guarded my heart where it was never 100% where this could shatter me. Like, I'll be okay if it doesn't exist, because once again, like, I'm self-sued. I'm very emotionally avoidant. That's my personality style. I don't get too attached to anything. But with mm -hmm. her, it, I think this, that's when I really started learning what loving a woman actually felt like and the vulnerability that it came with where it's almost like performative where as long as she is not okay, I could never be okay, right? 
So mm-hmm. there, there's there's a there's a weight to it. There's a there's a fright that comes along to it because there's a delicacy to the to the to the relationship. Uh, but I think she just unlocked my heart in a way uh, that had never been. And most of the times, until something happens, you have similances of different things that may look or feel that way. Uh, but it's the same thing. One thing about love, when it hits you, you never feel the same kind of thing. Right, yeah. Uh, that's what that did for me. Where even now that we want more kids, I'm scared to have another uh, daughter because oh. I'm like, I, I don't know what this could be because <laughs> this is so like complete and wholesome right all right uh, but it, but but it's honestly the most uh, amazing experience um that i could have ever been gifted with for sure and did it make you um because i've heard a lot of men say having a daughter made me love my wife differently how how did that also oh, change man. yeah yeah i'd love to uh, hear your uh, thoughts uh, on that because your child is learning what you know, a man loving a woman looks like in your household mm-hmm. watching the two mm-hmm. of you. So mm-hmm. what what's changed in, in you and I your mean, wife's relationship? I mean, it started in the delivery room, right? And I think that's why I always preach like, men, you got to be in the delivery room. Right. Because I would have died as strong <laughs> as I think I, I am. Seeing Adama, my wife is also Adama, like going through labor for like 18 hours, refusing to do a c-section and then Aisha being born but not only that how she loves Aisha is also something I could never match so yeah. there's such a deep level of reverence appreciation love that I have for her as a woman that I think most people take it for granted so I think it's changed our relationship where now you could even have a relationship as pre-Aisha and post-Aisha <laughs> right mm-hmm. um, and, and I think she's also so observant in terms of not only how I love her but the whole concept of like hey I'm number one but mommy better be number two kind of thing All right. uh, it's something she really expresses and internalizes um, so yeah I, I think it's beautiful and the thing about a child is it's a love creation either way right so right. Things, things about her you'll see the beauty of your wife through her Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. mannerisms things like oh man that is so her so I, I think this is definitely a gift um that i think that i see why culturally they'll tell you kids sometimes could even be a glue especially if there's two people willing to work mm-hmm. on certain things but uh mm-hmm. but it's, it's been a beautiful experience it really has been you know and it, it showed me a lot about adamas you know that i maybe would not have missed would have probably missed as well too. So it's really a been, been a beautiful feature to our, our family dynamic. I love that. All right. So my question is, when should we expect this book and where can we access them? Uh, yeah, so it's definitely ready. Uh, it's going to be released uh, first week in July, uh, which I'm nervous and excited about at the same time. Uh, but um, yeah, it, it's on its way. Um, my part is done. Uh, luckily, I have a very talented team. The whole team that kind of helped with the project has been really, really good. Uh, so yeah, less Excellent. than a month, it'll definitely be in the hands of people. And I'm looking forward to the conversations that it'll spark because I think there's certain subjects that people mm-hmm. will probably be shocked that I was willing to talk about, mm-hmm. um, especially as a Gambian man. Um, mm. uh, so I'm, I'm really, really interested to also even see the reaction within my family because wow. it, it'll be first time information for them. So I've kind of pre-warned them like, hey guys, so about this book, I'm just letting you know. <laughs> wow. Um, uh, but, but yeah, so I'm looking forward to it. 
um, before we we close, I just wanted to touch on two other topics. I yeah. feel like it's so brave of you to write this book and to touch on healing, because I feel like a lot of African men don't will live their entire lives and not heal from childhood traumas, mm-hmm. um, midlife crises. It's just they don't take the time to heal from traumatic experiences that they had so that they can be a better version of themselves. Like so many wounded people walking around Mm -hmm. and they pass that on to their children and they project onto their wives. So how was it for you? And what were the steps that you took or continue to take when it comes to healing? And if you can just touch on your journey with mental health. Yeah, so I think I've always been aware of and scared about people lionizing the time and space that I'm in with the entrepreneurial journey. Because our Mary knows this, Gambians is small. Mm-hmm. You come in automatically, they think, okay, it's my life. It's like, it's on the path for Muhammad, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> so they lionize you, which was also intentional, but also they try to put you in a box like, oh, right. this healthcare professional. So I was always mm-hmm. intentional about also letting people like, I want you to see me as an entire human being. And I find a lot of strength in my imperfections, but also in my courage to kind of find out what's wrong and why I am the way I am. Mm-hmm. Because when I started coming to Gambia too, is when I realized a lot of things that were broken or trauma that my even dad never had a chance to process, which I have started manifested as an adult, but recognizing him, I'm like, yo, I know what that is. I think this is what it is, right? And it mm-hmm. changes the idea of masculinity because anybody who follows me knows I live in the gym. There's nobody who will see me and confuse how masculine I am. But at the, <laughs> at the same time, I could talk about like, hey, I've been broken so many times, even on this entrepreneurial journey where I had to pick myself back up, like with really worn out tools. And mm-hmm. that's okay too, right? Um, and some people may see it like, why are you even saying this? But I'm like, there's going to be one person out there who realizes that Once again, going back to that duality, you could be soft and strong at the same time. Um, You don't have to choose either or, but there's also true liberation. I think this project is so liberating when I hit send Mm -hmm. to the the manuscript because I'm like, oh, now I could just exist because this is who I am and I'm okay with it, right? This is what Mm -hmm. I think about religion. This is what I think about society. This is what I think about love. These are the struggles of entrepreneurship. This is what I think about Africa. This is what I think about black being a black person in the world and I'm okay with it. So that becomes the new baseline from which hopefully people who read it will start seeing me as a whole human being uh, and just not misunderstand uh, who I am and why I really exist in terms of the time and space that I'm in right now. That's, I think it's always been important. Love it. Wonderful. Last, I just, I think we would be remiss if we ended this without talking about, because you've mentioned several times your entrepreneurial journey in Gambia. If you can just give us um, maybe just a quick overall idea of what is InnovaRx, when did you start it? How is that working? And what are the services that you you deliver for Gambians? Because we do have quite a number of um, diaspora Gambian listeners Mm -hmm. for this podcast. Yeah, so Innovarex, the name actually means just a new solution to global health. Innovarex means a new solution um, to global health. 
because a lot of people knew I was working with Walgis. Maybe, maybe or not, did not know. I spend a lot of time building community health systems for somebody else. Because uh, at some point, I was the guy when Walgreens was buying a local pharmacy, they'll send to do the entire conversion to build a, a community pharmacy up from scratch. So I had so much experience that I really realized that I could actually, it's, it's audacious, yes, but I, I could do this in the Gambia. It's going to be difficult, but I can Right. So what it is, is just a healthcare solutions company that's designed to capture people as early as possible on their health journey and keep them alive as long as possible without ever owning a hospital bed. Because uh, there's a personal story to that, because my grandmother died at 56. She has wow. hypertension, ha had hypertension, had diabetes. She died of a stroke. My mom has wow. been hypertensive and diabetic for a very long time. I was diagnosed with high blood pressure at the age of 28. So I've been living with oh, hypertension wow. since the age of 28. So people in my family actually die early because of diseases mm -hmm. that a lot of people could live to be 70, 80. And I was a diasporan. So my mom's fortunes were automatically changed because her son was a pharmacist in the USA where my grandmother, if she had Inovarex, what it is today, would have a chance. Yes, there's always God but you could have empirical data from science that tells you that the average Gambian man dies before 60. Gambia has the most widows um, based on our population than a lot of African countries, but it's because men marry young and die early. So they mm -hmm. create widows at, at 35, 40, right? Yeah. So even if you look at our business model, it was built around a pharmacy because no matter what hospital you have, or no matter what lab you have, if your grandmother cannot have a hypertensive medication on her bed every single day, her outcomes are gonna be a stroke, kidney failure, or something's gonna go wrong. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. So we also designed the model because we knew Africa is not poor. Black people are some of the wealthiest people in the world. A lot of them are just concentrated in the continental USA, but a lot of Gambians in the diaspora lose sleep at night because of the care that their loved ones may or may not get. So right. those are my customers, like people in the diaspora, because now if your grandmother, I tell people today, you know, because of Inovrex, the easiest way to describe the impact, people know I source my medications from the USA as difficult uh -huh. as that is from a regulatory standpoint. Joe Biden's hypertensive medication, the pill that he's taking every single day is the exact same pill that somebody's grandmother in Janjambure is taking. That's literally what Inovrex is. The same exact pill. So that's what the company is designed to do is just to democratize access and restore dignity back into healthcare. Um, that's excellent because from an economic standpoint, Gambia hasn't benefited from healthcare. Most of the players uh, haven't been African people um, so there's also a, a level of rebellion and defiance in terms of just competing for that uh, economic space to create prosperity that we could share amongst ourselves. So that's, that's what Innovarex is. And how long have you had Innovarex in Gambia now? How many years has it been? So this is year four. I registered the company in 2015 on paper, but I did mm -hmm. not open my doors until December of 2019. Uh, so we're in year four of operations in the Gambia. Um, we launched operations in Nigeria last year. Uh, but yeah, 2019, uh, December, right before COVID happened. Yeah.
pre-order it now. Good, good. Um, and uh, we'll also have some inspirational things around the book. That's why we wanted to have a separate account um, because I didn't want it to consume uh, every every aspect of my identity. Uh, but yeah, support the book. Uh, if you go to the uh, Fire Network Fire Publishing page on social media as well, to the link to the book is available to pre-order. Uh, I, I hopefully anybody who orders it, it'll be worthwhile the coin. Um, so so yeah, looking forward to people seeing more about it. Awesome. Amazing. Awesome. Thank you so much. Um, I you. know it's a Sunday. We yeah. appreciate you coming on here and being our first author to grace. Yes. Devil on Filter podcast. Yes. And I wish you all the best. With, thank with thank you. I'm made. sure it will be a, such a success. I can't wait. No, thank you. Both of you guys have been supporters of Inovarex, supporters of everything that's happening that's sure. in the Gambia. So your voices matter. Um, and you're an example that you don't have to, sometimes people that care and support Gambians right. don't have to live on Gambian soil. That's right. Uh, and, I, and I think you guys embody it. So thank you so thank much. You. Really great, thank you. Thank you so work. much. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. All righty. Awesome. Thank you, guys. Bye.